Welcome to a special series of EMS World podcasts. I am Hillary Gates, Senior Editorial and Program Director for EMS World. The COVID-19 pandemic has challenged and impacted the EMS profession in unique and lasting ways. So what are the best practices for us as clinicians, leaders, managers, medical directors, and for EMS as a profession? EMS World is proud to bring you the latest information from our COVID-19 webinars, now available in audio-only podcast episodes. This episode, How to Maintain Educational Continuity During the COVID-19 Pandemic, features Heather Davis, Michael Caduce, and Katie O'Connor, and is sponsored by Boundtree. Hello, and welcome to the latest in EMS World's series of special webinars on topics related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today's presentation is How to Maintain Educational Continuity During the COVID-19 Pandemic. My name is Jonathan Bassett, Editorial Director at EMS World. We're very happy to have everybody joining us today. We would like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring today's presentation. During the webinar, feel free to submit questions and comments for our speakers by using the question submission section on your screen. At the end of the presentation today, we'll try to answer as many of your questions as we can in the remaining time. And today we are very pleased to welcome our featured speakers. We have Dr. Heather Davis. Heather is Director of Student Assessment at the David Gethin School of Medicine at UCLA. She is a clinical adjunct professor in the Rossier School of Education at USC, where she teaches graduate courses in learning and motivation. Dr. Davis is also board chair for the National Registry of EMTs and has been a paramedic for more than two decades. We also have Michael Caduce. Michael is EMT program director at the UCLA Center for Pre-Hospital Care. He oversees the EMT program, which educates nearly 1,000 EMTs annually and provides refresher training for an additional 500 while maintaining a 97% pass rate on the NREMT exam. Michael began his career as an EMT at St. Luke's Hospital and then served as a firefighter paramedic at the Urbandale Fire Department in Iowa. He also served as the EMT and paramedic program director at the University of Iowa. Last but not least, we have Kathleen O'Connor. Kathleen is Assistant Program Director at the UCLA Center for Pre-Hospital Care. She manages the day-to-day -day operations of the Paramedic Education Program and is currently working on a grant to improve trauma simulation and education across the LA County trauma system. We're very happy to have these three EMS education experts joining us today. Uh, and with those intros, I'm going to turn it over to our presenters. So Heather, Michael, and Kathleen, thanks very much for joining us today, and please take it away. Thanks, John. Thanks for having us. So this is definitely what Katie and Michael look like when I said uh, no contact, starting Monday, no students in the building. So we're here to talk about how do you continue your educational continuity? How do we make it work for students when you could not have them in the building anymore? And so here we're all trying to follow the CDC guidelines, the guidelines of the federal government, our state governments, the regions, the colleges, and we have to figure out how do we make 
this work for students? How do we continue to put students through our programs, have them enter the healthcare workforce, and provide some sort of continued education, make it possible for them to do what they enrolled to do. And so uh, this scratching their head, I think is probably how Katie and Michael felt. So what we're here to do today is help give you some of the ideas and solutions uh, that we came up with, and hopefully a few of them might resonate with you. Um, and I'm sure that you have some of your ideas too. Yeah, it was definitely true what Dr. Davis said. It was all of a sudden, hey, 48 of your paramedic students can't all meet in the same place, figure it out, make it work, keep education going. Uh, so it was really important for us to realize the reality of the situation we were in and just kind of get all of our ducks in a row, so to speak. Uh, this wasn't us deciding, oh, we're gonna make the best online accelerated paramedic program for multiple different fire departments and private students right now in the middle of a pandemic. It was how do we keep going, keep education uh, continuity strong while we adapt to all of these changes. So we really wanted to make sure we set expectations. One was this is not going to be exactly perfect. We're going to try to incorporate the best principles we can about online teaching um, and then just adapt the course to make sense for the education objectives we needed to, to get done and the realities of what our students were facing, being short of toilet paper or having to go to the grocery store to shop for elderly parents or all of a sudden now their children don't have daycare during the day because their schools are closed or their daycare centers are closed. Um, and now they're at home instead of being at the library studying with seven of their cousins who all live in the same house with them. So it was really important for us to make sure that we set the expectation of first, the technology, we have to figure it out. We can't just assume that tomorrow like that, snap of the fingers, everybody's gonna be perfect on Zoom. Um, so we spent time and said, we're just going to log into the classroom and figure out everybody's technology. So we're not trying to learn anything right now. Literally log in, figure out where all the buttons are. How do you share your screen? How do you use annotate? Whose webcams are broken? And if your webcam is broken, how are we going to continue to make sure you're engaged and chatting with us while we're all social distancing. So that was really important. Um, and then once we started the education content, it was, it was hey, eight o'clock in the morning, you log on, you're taking your quiz. Everybody's webcams are on, we know what to expect, we're good to go. And we did that with our instructors too. So we kind of took the time to make sure that everyone had a chance to practice in Zoom. So they could go into a Zoom room, learn how to share their slides, learn how to use PowerPoint. Um, and then that way when we're, learning and teaching, we're ready to learn and teach and we don't have to worry about tech issues. That was, uh, the other thing that we did was use the situation to our advantage, which may sound kind of crazy because how can you use a pandemic to your advantage? Uh, but we would never have been able to get some uh, speakers and experts to LA. Uh, we also have a hard time in LA uh, our class is normally eight to five, um, and we haven't been able to interweave activities and skills with direct classroom content because nobody wants to spend two hours in traffic in LA driving to the school to be involved in skills for like two to four hours and then spend two more hours driving home. So we only usually can get breakout rooms and skills instructors for an entire day, meaning we have like a whole day of content delivery and then we get to do application for a whole day the next day. But now that no one can drive anywhere, 
Uh, there's no traffic in LA, which is awesome. And we can do like a couple hours of content delivery and then we can get instructors online and do breakouts and application of that activity without having to worry about people not wanting to give up a few hours of their day. It's worked out really well. The other thing was for reality checks and breaks was to make sure that we were still taking a break and actually maybe even taking more breaks because all of a sudden we're sitting in one place and the students are actually kind of used to that for some of our long uh, classroom days, but I found that it was so hard. I'm one of those people who walks around the entire classroom and now all of a sudden I'm sitting behind a computer and I was actually shaking so much that my webcam was shaking because I was just so used to being up and moving around. Uh, so one of our students who was always the person who was taking um, the time to do breaks in class actually now changes his photo. So he turns his webcam off and it turns his camera into a picture of a break flag to remind the person who's on Zoom that, hey, it's time for a break. So we've been still trying to make sure that we're taking good breaks and uh, engaging the students, but being realistic about the fact that it's hard to be behind a computer screen for a really long period of time. So other things we were thinking about are how can we use different strategies to teach online um, but still keep the engagement really high and then change the schedule from what we would normally have done from eight to five to something that's maybe like a long lunch because the grocery stores here in California are now closing earlier. So when we finished at five and they spent an hour or two hours studying, they could hit the grocery store on their way home. That's not really a reality right now. You have to go to the grocery store only during certain periods of time. The pharmacies are only open during certain periods of time. If you are going to the food bank because you're on food assistance or your family is, those are certain hours. So we were really trying to make sure that we could do different things, still accomplish the same learning objectives, but be flexible to the students' needs. So in order to be flexible with the challenging realities of the time and take advantage of the fact that we now could use instructors for small snippets of time without having to worry about traffic considerations, we've been able to interweave some of these higher level learning objectives into our normal classroom. So we're using case-based learning and we were able to jump on with CaseX, uh, which uses real DX uh, videos. And we're using some of the stuff from our Jones and Bartlett classroom for the uh, video ride-alongs and Caduce can actually talk a little bit more about that, how they're using them in EMT. But we're watching videos of real calls and then facilitating discussion around the care, the assessment. And sometimes these real calls actually have real mistakes. So our instructors can facilitate a deeper level of learning as the students are having these conversations and using critical thinking about the cases instead of just working on them by themselves. We've also been able to have small group discussions and really push the students to uh, think critically, discuss, uh, argue for one case and uh, against another instead of just following along with videos. Uh, we're using some stuff from the active learning products for uh, Jones and Bartlett, the Tell, Act, Draw It, where it's almost like a, great, a game of cranium, if you're familiar, where they do kind of charades or they draw. They use the whiteboard feature in Zoom and they draw out stuff. So we were thinking of like differential diagnosis. They were kind of drawing out the disease process or they were acting out the different air, uh, types of uh, childbirth delivery problems. Um, I'm even laughing thinking about it. It was really engaging and the students had to think about different things to make the, uh, the concepts come across alive in Zoom. One of the activities that we use in class frequently is think, pair, share, and you can definitely still do that in the remote environment using Zoom because of the breakout rooms. 
So you might use this activity where you ask students, think about what you know about this topic. And you might say, what do you know about shock? Write now to yourself, write it down on a piece of paper. Tell me, write down everything you already know about shock. It could be about any topic. You say, what do you know about CHF? What do you already know about um, the signs and symptoms of acute MI? And you have them com complete that right in front of them. I want you to actually write it down though. Um, and then once, you know, once all their heads pop back up so you can tell that they're kind of finishing what they actually wrote down, then you just randomly assign them to a large number of breakout rooms so that they're paired up with just one partner. So you basically make the, the number of breakout rooms half of your class so that they end up only paired with one or two at the most partners. And what you're asking them then to do is pair up with somebody and compare what they wrote. And so they're coming up with a better definition and sharing information sort of, okay, I wrote this, what did you write? Oh, I missed that, oh, I didn't have that detail, okay. And then together they're creating even better definitions or um, sums of knowledge of the information they had about whatever you asked them to write about, chalk, et cetera, uh, CHF, whatever you asked them to write about. And then um, you make bigger break, uh, well, fewer breakout rooms so that the groups get even bigger and have them come together. And now they're coming up with combined and even better definition. So they're sharing the information in this larger group. And then that's when you have them report out. And you'll be able to see what is the group, what do the groups collectively know about this particular topic, then you as the instructor will be able to assess what does the class know collectively about this piece of information or this topic area. And then of course now you can provide some direct instruction or some closing the gap of whatever those little tiny pieces were that they didn't quite have. Um, so if there was anything that they had misinformation about or they just didn't quite have that never came up when all the groups presented out, then you can make sure that you cover those uh, last little nuggets of information that you need to. But that way they're working together in groups, they're negotiating information, they're sharing with each other, they're checking their own knowledge, and you can allow them to have lots of resource access, right? So yeah, they're on Zoom, but they still probably have their phone, they might have an iPad, they certainly have their textbook, they have their notes from class, and they can look up information, confirm with each other uh, the information that they're sharing. So um, I love this idea of crowdsourcing information and, and people, and Katie's been doing a lot of that in the classes as well. So this is an idea actually that Hillary Gates who um, is, in, is uh, from EMS World, she presented at a NEMSI conference a little bit differently. It was, they were equity sticks when she taught us how to do them at a NEMSI conference, and I just loved her idea. And I brought it back to UCLA and said, we really should start doing these. So now on the first day of class, we have the students, we use the, the big popsicle sticks, if you will, if you know what I'm talking about, the tongue depressor size ones. And uh, students write their name on them and they can decorate them however they want. So you can just have them draw on them or you can provide, you know, feathers and sequins and all kinds of things to decorate their stick. Um, but the idea is that you have one popsicle stick or one tongue depressor for each student and you keep them up at the lectern. And when you're calling on students, you ask the question aloud so that everybody has a chance to hold the information in their head to formulate their answer. 
And then after you've asked it aloud, you pull a stick out of the jar and whoever's, whoever stick you pull, that's the person that you call on. And then once they have answered, then you, you set that aside and throughout the course of the day or the week, what have you, you make your way through all of the sticks. It ensures that you don't tend to call on the same person all the time. Um, now you see the slide says sticks of justice. That's because one of our instructors, Edward Oliphant, can't remember that they're called equity sticks and he has renamed them the sticks of justice to ensure that everybody is equally put in the hot seat um, at, at, at an equal rate. So we love that and I love that he has, has renamed them. Uh, Katie, why don't you share how you've been using uh, the polling feature in Zoom and both um, large group Kahoot but also the small group Kahoot or the, uh, sorry, the individual Kahoot. Yeah, we're trying to get as much interaction as we can and the sticks to justice are great and we found that we actually had a, sometimes a drawback when we were teaching GYN emergencies. We kind of forgot that people had children in their house and maybe when they were trying to type stuff into the chat versus answering out loud, it was because they didn't want to have an awkward conversation with their four or five year old about the words they were using. Um, so we're like, okay, maybe some of these concepts are easier or better taught with polls or cahoots or other types of interaction that don't require audio if it becomes a problem in the student's house. Um, so we did polls through the Zoom app where they can like literally just launch a poll and answer it live and we can share results there. It's also been really helpful for things where we have to make quick decisions on the fly of do we need to do more of this type of activity? Is this working? Are students having tech problems? You can throw a poll up real fast and get a quick result from Zoom. And then we're using Kahoot and Kahoot's actually opened up a lot of their resources for free for educators during this time. So we're taking advantage of that and doing live Kahoot's where I share my screen and we play live almost like we were doing that in class. Uh, and then we've also done the self-paced Kahoot. So we can assign them um, and they can do it at their own pace. So if we do take a longer break to facilitate some of those life things that are happening right now, the students can do Kahoot if it's good for them in the afternoon or if they have to wait until their screaming child goes to bed or their dog stops barking so they can focus, they can do that later in the evening. So online skills has been an area that we've really been um, super ex excited to do things like crowdsource and use um, all sorts of different people. I literally wasn't sure how I could get our simulated participants and uh, fake patients, we're calling them, onto the online Zoom environment. Usually there's students from our prep class or EMT class who need extra credit, or it's family members of other students who just come to see what their paramedic student's doing through the day. So I kind of, in a moment of desperation, just posted onto Twitter and Facebook and was like, family, friends, I need simulated patients. Can anyone come out and help us? And the response has actually been overwhelming. People shared it. We've had, um, a nurse midwife come in and talk to them and teach them about GYN and how to ask those questions that are difficult for them that would never have been able to come to our classroom because they're on the East Coast. Uh, we've been able to really focus on the uh, assessment and the questions. Normally when we have the students in the classroom, they get so focused on doing the IV skill and taking out the meds and all those ALS things that are so important uh, in their minds and kind of neglect the assessment and only the team leader who's asking the questions even pays attention to the differential. Now everybody's paying attention to the differential and they're sending notes in the chat to each other about 
oh, wait, is it this? You should ask this question instead of talking over each other and really working on teamwork. So that's been great. Um, the next slide has a couple examples of some of the things we've been able to do that are taking advantage of Zoom. We have a large class. And so when we whiteboard in the classroom, it can be really difficult for students at the back to see what we're doing. So we tend to rely on PowerPoints, which isn't as fun, it isn't as engaging. But now that everyone has their own small screen and they can see real close, we've been doing a lot of whiteboarding and then we can save the whiteboard, Zoom will do it automatically for us and upload them as PDFs. And then the students can have them on their phone and they're actually small uh, files compared to large PowerPoints with lots of images that can be hard for students who are dealing with Wi-Fi or bandwidth issues to download. Um, same thing with videos. So it's been giving us a whole nother way to reach some of those students in a more accessible format. Uh, this is an example of Chris Krumbach, who's in Fairfax County, who's able to come in and give his uh, sepsis lecture that he does at conferences around the country to our class. So we were able to get him for an hour and it just worked out and we never would have had that opportunity if we had to do it in person, not through Zoom. And then in skills, uh, our instructors have been really using the virtual backgrounds that you may have seen as a joke. Some people have like Tiger King pictures and all different stuff, but we're using them to set the stage for our Sims and we're finding that the students are really getting engaged. So this is a picture of our, one of our lead instructors at Oliphant. And so he's the target store manager and he just found a red hoodie at his house to get into character. Um, so he meets them at the beginning of the Sim in the breakout room and he's the store manager. He's like, hey, follow me. There's a woman who slipped and fell. Uh, and then below, you'll see when they get in the store, uh, Hillary would turn her camera on and she actually was able to create a housewares aisle in her house. So that's her house uh, and she's slipped and fallen and she's got like a shoe that's broken as a prop and she's got all the housewares behind her. And she did this all on her own. It wasn't even something that we came up with. So that's Hillary Gates from EMS World. And um, I can tell you that when you start crowdsourcing, crowdsourcing and you're getting all of these people involved, their creativity and ideas just they run with it it's awesome um i've linked in with someone who i went to uh, elementary school with who's now an actor in new york and a bunch of the people who work in improv and comedy and actors have a bunch of free time because their clubs are closed and they've been willing to come in and help and do improv and act as simulated patients for our students and the response from the students has been overwhelmingly positive We've also focused on what objectives from skills can we do? We can't really do a lot of the psychomotor, but we can do some of it. So we're lucky to have the reality system and iSimulate training units at UCLA. And so we screen share and then have the students use the annotate feature in Zoom to actually touch the knobs or circle the knobs that they would use and what buttons they would hit, what order. So they're getting familiar with the process of using the different monitors that they'll have to come into. So when we do get back together in small groups, uh, it'll kind of cut down on some of the time that would have been spent with a whole bunch of people huddled over one monitor, craning their necks to see which buttons are being pressed. Now they have familiarity with the buttons and the steps. Uh, and we didn't really develop new content. What you're seeing is pictures and vitals and EKG strips that came right out of the ACLS instructor manual. All we did was put them up and then connect and screen share our iSimulate and have the students work through the cases almost as if they were there. The only thing that's missing is the mannequin and doing the actual CPR. All of the concepts around team-based learning, education, all of that was still able to be captured. So it was the monitors, the EKG identification, um, and Ed actually came up with the idea of using private chat feature in Zoom 
to only send the assigned team member the information. So if a team member was assigned blood pressure, he sent that information only to that student. And then we had a delay for how long it would take to actually get a uh, blood pressure on the monitor pop up on the screen. The one thing we were worried about is how is this going to impact the students learning and I just wanted to include some of our comments and feedback from the students from the evaluations we did. They are loving it. It's uh, one they're just overwhelmingly grateful that we're doing anything to continue their education during all of this pandemic. Uh, but they're also scoring higher on critical thinking questions. Their average exam increased and the feedback from all of our evaluators and instructors has been that the assessments are better than they would expect from students in the place of the education that ours are in and that they're asking better questions. So they're really thinking critically and going through a differential. Um, they've also increased their ability to have good communication and therapy communication with our simulated patients. And Katie, there's an element here that our listeners might think of of priming the pump, because while this is not exactly the same as having, you know, the mannequin on the floor or running a call in somebody's home where they're able to run the entire mega code, push the drugs, do the CPR, you know, do the mannequin, do the airway management, but we're priming the pump so that when we are able to come back together or when we are able to send students to the uh, clinical and field settings they should be able to pick up the skills that much faster and there's pretty good evidence for that yeah it's exactly what scaffolding is right so we're taking a few of the objectives that we would want like close the communication and we're doing that now so then when they're adding the physical psychomotor skill of doing compressions with closed loop communication they're layering that on top this is um, some of the other examples of stuff that Heather is saying in crowdsource. Um, I say steal from everyone, but really borrow, collaborate would probably be a better term. Um, these are things that already exist. So when we were looking at our EMS systems and how we were going to teach some of the things around public health and operations and triage, um, we looked at the objectives that we knew we had to cover and then found ways of things that already existed that do a great job of covering this. So we didn't have to reinvent the wheel. Um, one is VAX, and it's a game about epidemic prevention and really looks at vaccination and how it protects the community. Uh, epidemic is a disease, uh, is really current right now, but it's about how disease spreads through a community. And so it talks about public health measures and disease transmission. And then the other picture here is from 60 Seconds, which is a triage simulation game. And it's actually already been proven to improve providers' triage skills. So we're just using that in class to meet those objectives. So all of the flipaholics out there will, you know, be aware that Dave Page and I have been running around the country with the rest of our flipaholics. And now we have, you know, Katie and Michael on board been saying for a long time, you know, bring activities into the classroom. And so many folks have uh, said, we don't have time, we don't have time. But this is an important concept you're bringing up is we don't use those activities to add on to lecture, what you do is you use them to replace lecture. And um, the backs and I love the game Spent, which is also free to help with social determinants of health and um, which is incredibly relevant right now where so many people have lost their jobs and are really making you know very difficult choices about how they will spend the little money that they have left. Will they buy groceries? Will they use it for healthcare? Um, 
we use them in place of a lecture on those concepts. And that's how we've been using those activities that already exist, many of them evidence-based, many of them were grant-funded, and many of the, uh, those games that you showed were actually created for healthcare workers or for students in healthcare education programs. I think one of the other questions that we asked ourselves was we can do skills labs and we can teach students how to do skills. How do we do the final evaluation or how do we evaluate their learning as they're going to make sure they've got skills acquisition um, without being in the same room as our students? Um, what you see here is me doing a, a impromptu training for our instructors on how we could actually evaluate a student's ability to assess another patient. Um, I don't have family members that I can do a patient assessment on. Um, so I use some props that I had throughout my house. Um, you'll see the frog in the picture is the student who's evaluating another person, the bear, um, on the screen. And we've actually seen students do this quite creatively. Um, their family members or who they're quarantining or self-isolating with are usually happy to volunteer. Um, though I have seen some students use teddy bears to do a medical or a trauma assessment. Um, we all have the similar extremities. Um, so really making uh, some creativity in terms of how students will do this. Um, we had some questions very early on when we said, can we do this? Um, in terms of really making sure that our students are taking what we're telling them and acquiring the skill and really cementing it in those steps of skills acquisition. Um, and what we found is that our students actually got more creative than we thought. Um, I was watching one the other day where they were using a chip clip for the pulse ox. Um, one of the students took their fire extinguisher and covered it in white paper to make an oxygen cylinder out of it. Um, I think that's really what we're looking for when we're saying, can our students critically think? Can they take the concepts that we're telling them in terms of this is how you perform a discrete skill and transform it into being able to carry it out on the ambulance. So um, some really cool things that our students are doing that um, really went above and beyond what we were expecting, but from an educator standpoint demonstrated to us that they had acquired the skills content or the skills knowledge um, to carry it out. So the, the, in course administration, I think there are some things that we need to give consideration to. What I've noticed, um, both we've had some success at the paramedic school, but also in our undergraduate medical education program, um, I've seen our leadership be incredibly successful here too by communicating the rationale behind some of the decisions. So um, students need to understand where is this coming from and how much of this do you have control over and how much input do they have. So I think it would be important for them to understand um, whether or not their opinions will be able to change the decisions that you're making. So whether or not they would like to be on campus, will that matter in how you craft your content? So if you have a safer at home order and your governor or the you, you, you know, UC Regents in our case has said, students will not return to campus until after such date, then it doesn't really matter what students think about that because it's not going to change that decision. Um, and so it's important that they know that while they are entitled to an opinion, it's not going to change how you proceed about them coming on campus. And so we have to communicate where are these directives coming from. And, and so given these 
guardrails, here's how we've arrived at how we want to proceed. And I think if you can communicate, these are the principles we're operating within, here's what's important to us, and we want to know what's important to you, like continuing your education, decreasing the amount of time in which you are paused or don't have anything to do, ensuring that you can move forward, um, whatever those, uh, those are, I, I think that, that that's helpful in helping students adjust to this um, interruption, certainly in what they expected to receive when they signed up for your course at, at whatever time that was. Um, as you look at your current policy manual, when you, they started on campus, whether that was in January or March or whenever they started their course, if you look at those policies, you probably cannot enforce all of them anymore. Um, so it might be helpful to figure out which ones matter to you the most now and then communicate those. So is it that they must be on time? Is it that they, you know, wh which ones, you know, is it, you know, treatment of others? You figure out which ones matter and then be, you could be silent on the rest um, because you're not going to be able to enforce some things because they're not in front of you. They're not reporting to campus every day. Some things you, you don't know about what they're doing, you know, sort of behind the scenes. And so you have to kind of pick your battles here, I think. Uh, so we have decided, you know, which ones matter and, you know, communicate about those and be clear about the expectations and how you'll measure them. I think that some students do have anxiety about how are you going to judge me or give me a grade on things that are out of my control. So for example, if they now have their children at home, in this environment and we're competing for internet power for bandwidth and my camera keeps going out we have a policy we always have had a policy in our hybrid courses that you have to have your camera on if your camera's off for more than 10 minutes you are now considered absent well we had to revise that because now all of a sudden their children are at home being homeschooled they are also logged into the internet and somebody's spouse might also be home in an important meeting using the same bandwidth and so it's like okay that's a little different now but what we have asked is that students communicate with us so that we know what the expectations and if they can't have their camera on for a particular time they need to be communicating in chat and that they have to respond immediately um, so we've just kind of had to change that rule a little bit um, so what matters to us and what we were able to communicate is engagement matters. We want to know that you're there, that you're paying attention, that you are engaged with us and with the material. So how you do that was not as important as, you know, the fact that you are engaged. So that's what I would say about those policies. I think it's important that students know during this time that we're in it together and that we care about them as human beings, as learners, not just about the rules and about getting the work done. So you might think about having, a, you know, in Qualtrics or in SurveyMonkey, whatever you use, you can actually put in like a, a little sidebar for a smiley face to go from happy to sad. How are you doing? How are you feeling? Um, we uh, folks are experiencing loneliness, isolation, 
stress, anxiety, as people are, you know, may have come into your community to take your program and now are stuck there if they can't go on to clinical or to field. They might be deciding, should they move home? Should they stay? They might have extra financial burdens. All of those are competing priorities right now. How are they doing? How are they feeling? Because all of that competes in terms of cognitive load and an ability to get the work done. So what we've tried to communicate is that the, the communication matters and we need to know how you're doing in order to help you. Don't let it be a surprise. Don't just not show up. Let us know how you're doing and we can create lots of room, lots of space, lots of exception. But don't let us go looking for you. We shouldn't have to hunt you down. And we don't and we don't want to wonder. We don't we also don't want to waste any time looking for you or trying to figure out what's happening. And let's, you know, work together on being successful. Um, the last element there is be careful what you ask for on your course evaluations right now. Because if you look at your old evaluations, first of all, a lot of that might not even apply. You might not be doing some of the same activities that you were when they were on campus. So if you look at your normal block evaluations or unit evaluations or course evaluations, they may be asking about your skills labs, about activities that you normally did on campus. And, and so that's, first of all, gonna be annoying to students that they're like, well, we're not even doing this stuff. And then secondly, if you're asking, well, you know, is this better than that? Well, the answer is probably no. It would be much better to be on campus doing your normal activities. You really want to ask questions about, of the way that you're presenting the material now, is this better than, than, than one, is one activity better than another of what we're doing now? So do you like the case X? activities or do you like having the simulated participants that were crowdsourcing? Do you like having the think pair share or do you like having more of the, um, the small group discussions? Like which one is contributing to your learning more? You want to have them do that sort of comparison or rate those at kinds of activities that you're doing now rather than comparing now to before. Four. You probably don't want to keep conjuring up the this look how different this is now. So many folks are probably figuring out, well, how do I assess what's happening for students? How do I grade them? Well, let's think about testing. The first is that testing is not the same thing as feedback. Um, there is absolutely no limitation to the amount of feedback that you can give to students right now. You're interacting with them. You can give them informal feedback. But I would suggest that you also are going to need to document some of this feedback. So whether you do it in the same way that you were with self-assessments, quizzes, and exams, or whether you create a few new tools, one that I might suggest is an opportunity for students to do some self-assessment. How is this going for them? Which objectives do they feel they are mastering? Where do they feel that they have some holes? when they do get back to campus or when they get out there in the field, where do they think they need to focus their attention? Ask them to do some reflection. You might create some assessment tools, self-assessment tools that put some of that reflection kind of in their seat. But lots of feedback here is good. Practice questions are a good thing. And so 
Um, more quizzes, more self-assessments, more is, is better in this sense, because they're definitely going to be feeling off their game and off kilter in terms of, am I prepared enough? Is this kind of learning for me? Many of them may have felt, I don't learn good this way. I don't take online classes for a reason. I, I can't do this. And so you really want them to get lots of practice and demonstrate that you can do this and you are learning. So um, whether you pull up old exams, whether you use old quizzes, maybe you never really did use the practice questions that came with your textbook, might be a time to source those. Um, when we start thinking about, okay, but how do you do actual exams? Um, so then you're gonna be in a remote proctoring kind of situation. Keep in mind, there are many versions of remote proctoring at really kind of different levels of scrutiny. So um, the very like most simple would be the students at home in their own environment, and they just have a you know, safe exam browser software, something that's downloaded onto their computer, which prevents them from using any of their browser on their computer. Keep in mind, that doesn't prevent them from using any other electronic device while they're, you know, any other electronic device while they're using their computers. They could use a textbook, they could use their notes, they could use their cell phone, they could use an iPad, they could use another computer in their house. They could, they could do any kind of thing that they want. Um, that goes two ways. So first of all, you have to consider those items that you sent to the remote environment pretty much gone. You really wouldn't be in a position to ever use them again in a controlled testing situation. You would definitely have to re-pilot those items. And most of us in EMS are really not great at piloting our test items anyway. So probably those items are lost. And most of us don't have really great banks of items um, unless we're working with uh, you know, one of the a uh, couple of publishers of, of items out there. We don't have really great banks of items, and so this would be difficult for most uh, schools to manage. Um, so you would probably consider those lost. And then the other thing is also keep in mind that the unproctored environment, for some students, they'll do worse because that temptation to just take my work and look something up kind of starts them down a rabbit hole. So maybe they were just going to look something up and then they start, you know, Googling or whatever and they look something up and then they go, oh, oh I didn't look that up. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, I didn't study that. And all of a sudden they've spent 20 minutes looking something up or just checking to make sure they were going to answer that question right. And they do that again and again and again and all of a sudden time's up and they have 22 questions they haven't finished and end up with not a passing score. So you'll see those students run out of time when they normally don't have any problems finishing the exam on time. So those are nuances we see when folks move to an unproctored environment. Another level of the remote proctoring would be that um, you do the you issue the exam through Zoom and the students are in breakout rooms. So maybe there's one proctor to 10 or 15 students and they're all in breakout rooms and you're watching them. Keep in mind, again, it would be difficult to kind of control what's in the student's environment, but that is another way you could do it. 
Then there's a, a much, a, a ne- the, kind of the next highest level, where, whether you use a service like, um, like uh, ProctorU, something, Examity, something like that, or whether you do it yourself with your school staff through Zoom, where the student comes in, you check their ID, they're in a breakout room, they use a second device, like the camera from their phone, to show you their workspace, the, the, the computer they're using, the desk underneath the desk, the chair they're in, all of that. But I did want to bring up as an issue to you, remember many people are in different, different circumstances right now. To unexpectedly be torn from college, be sent home because they can't live in the dorms. Um, they may be living you know, with six roommates right now, maybe they got sent back to their parents' house. All their belongings are in trash bags. There's not a bed for them because they moved out and went to college. They're basically sleeping on a, you know, a a pallet on the floor and all this stuff's kind of piled around them. If you did inspect, you know, their workspace and underneath the desk and whatever, and what you saw was a bunch of stuff piled around them, would you even say that that was an appropriate space for them to take a test? And how would they be feeling about it? Many folks would be embarrassed about that. They wouldn't want to show you that environment. And you might not think that that is an appropriate, secure environment to take a test. And so they, you end up in this position of where the student's in a, in a difficult place, in difficult circumstances, and then you're going to have to make a policy decision. So around remote proctoring and remote testing, you probably want to have an alternative, like you could wait to take the exams until you come back to campus, um, or there's an alternate way you know, to do that. So without penalty, you might want to think through that with your administration as well. I think Heather brings up some great points in terms of taking exams and how proctored we assume um, our students are being successful in. Um, even pre-COVID, we use a fairly intensive proctoring service that does all of these things and actually tracks pupil movement in terms of students looking off screen. Um, and yet we still know that there's some concern with test validity. There's a graphic here of some students that after they were done with the test, were still actually being recorded and went in and had some discussions about the exam. Um, So I think one of the things that we're focusing on is ensuring that we're student-centric. If I can't ensure that my students can take a closed book exam in a safe environment where there is some risk that they could do, they could open their notes or they could look back at their materials, um, maybe that means we change how we do the testing. Maybe that means we do make the exam open note or we make the exam open book. If we're going to have to recreate some of these items anyway, why don't we set the student up to be successful in the first place? Um, the We all know that the American Heart Association actually allows you to take tests. We know that there is learning acquisition from looking up answers that you don't know. Um, So I think there should be some focus here on making sure that in this environment where we're under 
uh, increased levels of stress that we don't add more to students and things that we can't hold them accountable to. So we're not setting falsely, artificially false standards for students here. So um, making sure that what we're expecting of them does meet with what the exam is going to be set for. Um, and I think this also encourages us to be involved in different item writing um, and item analysis so that we're making sure that if we are going to have to redo exams after the COVID epidemic, um, that we can come back and say, yes, we've created some new exams. We've already spun up some new questions. Um, we've got things that we can add into the system. So I think that's a good reminder for us while we have some staff that may have some downtime um, to participate in some item writing workshops. Um, as we work to try and get students out into the field and try and support the workforce, um, one of the things that we found was we had a class that finished right before the pandemic took place. Um, and so these students were kind of in a balance point between I have my course completion certificate, but I haven't tested the national registry yet. And we know there was a short pause there where we re-upped everything. We started to get Pearson views back open. We got students in. Um, but what we found was there's this couple week period where students need to kind of get that reminder of taking tests. Um, so we spun up five NREMT prep sessions, literally just wrote questions from the textbook, just flipped through, found different types of questions, um, and then did about 25 questions every hour um, through Zoom, recorded them, and then sent them out to the students to say, hey, if you're in limbo right now, here's some example questions. I think one of the things that we didn't take into account, but actually this paid off for us, we had several students that returned to their home countries. Um, they actually were told to return. Um, their home country said, we're locking down. If you want to come back, you need to come back now. Um, where there's not even a Pearson View Center where they can test. Um, so that was a concern for us as these students have completed the program and if we don't keep them actively doing some practice, um, we're going to be concerned there. Um, and then I think it's always important to remember that we do have some students that that $85 may be the food for this week. Um, perhaps there's a financial burden for them taking the test so they're going to delay it for a couple weeks or a couple months. Um, maybe they're called to take care of a family member or a loved one where they simply can't get to the testing center. Uh, we need to have something so that those students can get out into the workforce so that we can keep supplying the workforce with employees who are competent. Um, and this is one of the ways we did it with just some Zoom sessions where we would go through and remind students, remember when it says you should, what are you really looking for? When it says, what are you most concerned with? What answer choice should you be thinking through in your mind? Um, so that was one of our goals to really try and make sure that students who had some sort of reason they couldn't get to test um, or couldn't take the National Registry in the next couple months had some resource that they could use um, to, to stay competent, stay efficient, and keep their test taking skills up. Um, on National Registry, uh, Heather, do you want to provide us just a brief update on the NREMT? Sure, yeah. Uh, thinking nationally, part of the National Registry's responsibility is to uh, protect the public, also ensure fair access to an exam that is equitable and folks can continue to enter the workforce. And so uh, one of the things that we've done is uh, an extension of expiration dates. So if you expired in March, you no longer do. Um, you have it through the summer and your card should already reflect that. If you log in and check your, um, your account, you should see uh, that. You can also download um, an electronic copy of your card. If your employer were verifying your expiration date, they can see that as well. 
Um, there's, we also removed any limits to distance education, um, generally defined as when there's not a live person on either end, uh, on both ends, sorry, um, of the educational event happening. So um, something like a, a VILT where there's a live instructor and live students that usually most people think of that as a live event. Um, I know most people are not coming together, but most Zoom sessions would be considered live events anyway. Um, but asynchronous events, those usually are considered distance. We removed the limits during this time, knowing that more education was likely to go distant um, because uh, people would not be able to gather. So um, the next was uh, um, provisional registration. Uh, approval of provisional registration, which means that a psychomotor exam would not be required, but the cognitive exam would be. Um, so if you're unable to take a psychomotor exam because of social distancing, um, after course completion, then you would uh, take the cognitive exam and be issued a provisional registration. Uh, and then when psychomotor exams open back up, you go back and take the psychomotor exam. And after passing the psychomotor exam, then you would have your full-on national registration. Uh, the uh, other is uh, remote proctoring is coming for EMT and advanced EMT. Um, which will leave those um, the testing, the seats available at the um, testing sites open for those that need it and for the paramedics um, who are taking uh, the exams as well. So right now there are seats available at testing sites. Um, Michael, many of your students have been able to, and our students as well, have been able to get an exam. That of course depends on how many sites were available in your area to begin with. Um, many closed but are reopening now and have been for the last several weeks. Um, and we continue to work with our partner Pearson View to get those sites available. But those are some of the things that Registry has done to try to keep uh, folks entering the workforce and keep their cards current so that they can continue to work and serve the public um, during this uh, critical time. We just wanted to say that if you're even here on this webinar and you're doing anything to continue education, you should give yourself a pat on the back. You've already been successful in trying to do the best for your students and that's what all this is about, just ensuring success. Thank you so much for being here today and being interested in continuing the educational uh, events for your students and continuing their journey into the into the healthcare workforce. I think at this point, um, thank you to my colleagues for being on the call today, Michael and Katie, and we'll open it up for questions. Okay, thank you so much to Heather, Michael, and Katie. We are now going to open up the discussion to our attendees, and we're going to try to get through as many questions as we can in the remaining time today. And questions are coming in fast and furious. We are going to dive right in, and we're going to start off with a, uh, with a question from Chris, who's listening in and asking about um, uh, instituting these modifications on a budget. Chris, Chris asks, do you have to spend more money or increase your budget for any of these modifications? How do you suggest we do this on the cheap? Um, Katie, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, so that was a, a big concern for us as well, um, especially because we know that there were going to be a lot of loss of revenue and cl classes canceled and potential impact from the situation. Uh, we actually were able to save money. Um, uh, we 
jumped onto the university's Zoom account, so that we already had that for free. Uh, we utilized all of our full-time faculty members for the um, online components and lectures. And then we um, also use them in, as skills instructors. So they normally would not be in our skills stations. We would have hired that out to hourly staff, uh, but we were able to repurpose uh, them. And then we used people from across the team. So like could, Michael Caduce is the EMT program director, but he came and became a paramedic skills instructor for us, and he brought his team members with him. Uh, and then for materials, we just used the things that we already had and adapted them. So we took scenarios that we had that were already existing or things that we already use in the course, like our PHTLS, AMLS, AHA type scenarios and adapted them. So it was not a ton of extra workload. And since we didn't have a ton of extra workload for our instructors for development, they were free to take over the hourly positions that we normally would have had to pay for. Thanks, Katie. Maybe we can stick with you for this next one. Where is a good location or YouTube channel to find real case videos to show students and to discuss? Are you aware of any other sources besides JBL for videos of calls? So I know that there are paid ones, um, and actually Caduce could mention one that he used when he was at Iowa, but I've been, again, a finder of lots of other stuff. Um, I jokingly say that I steal from everyone else, but really it's borrowing from the community. Um, so there's the Los Angeles Police Department will post their 911 calls online, and it's, so it's the real recordings from the 911 dispatch center, and you can use that. It's free as your, like, intro to the scenario. Um, you can also use things like the documentaries that have focused on EMS, so Night, Night Watch, Live EMS, Live Rescue. Uh, they post clips of their shows online. They're on YouTube, Facebook, a &E has some stuff on their site. Um, so you could use those, too. If your students have seen the show, it might have given away the answer, but really not so much about getting to the right answer as it is working through the process of a differential. So I think it would still work for you. Okay, we have a question here about Zoom. If your institution has not purchased the extended version of Zoom, you only have about 40 minutes for class. Are you aware of any other options? Katie, you're on a roll. Do you want to take that one? Yeah, I think I've become like um, Zoom's like most valuable player or something right now because I'm on Zoom all day long. It seems our classes started at like 7:30 and went to um, sometimes closer to 10 o'clock at night. And we were able to do that through the Zoom's education package, um, which they've now dropped the 40-minute time limit for anyone from K through 12 education. And on their website, they have a request this offer. So I'd first say, just go to request that offer and see if they'll make an exception for your program, even though you're not K through 12. My assumption is yes. That's been the response I've gotten from multiple companies who said, like, for example, they told Dr. Davis they would give a free product to the med students. And I was like, what about the paramedic students? We're cool, too. And they're like, oh, okay, I guess so. We didn't even think about you guys. Um, so if you ask, the only thing they can say is no, and you're in the same place. So I would say first ask. Um, and then Zoom actually has a business account that's only $15 a month that gives you 24-hour long meetings. So if you're only thinking about doing this for a couple months, maybe that's an alternative low-cost solution for you, too. Thanks, Katie. We have a question here about hands-on um, skills practice. What are some ways to ease the fears of our students who don't feel like they have hands-on time or skills time or interactions with patients? Uh, what are some ways they can practice at home? Let's, uh, let's give Katie a break. And Heather, you want to take that one? Sure. So the first I would say is that enough 
time or enough practice is relative anyway. And remember, many of us will come from different systems. So uh, we happen to be really, uh, you know, uh, blessed that we're in Los Angeles and our students get hundreds of patient interactions. But I actually did my original training in Iowa. I looked around and thought, well, I got to get out of here if I'm going to get any experience. And we joke about that. But literally in my whole entire um, internship, I gave albuterol and nitroglycerin. So, and somehow I, you know, I figured out how to do patient care. So it really is relative to where you're at and what you make of it. I remember practicing on, you know, pillows that I formed to make a person because I could have a head and body. Um, I'm a jujitsu practitioner, and I have a YouTube video of how to make a practice dummy, a drilling dummy out of, you know, a sweatshirt and make a pillow for the head so that I can practice. So where there's a will, there's a way. If you have a stuffed animal, if you have children at home, if you have someone you're quarantined with, anybody who will hold still for you, you can practice on. And, you know, Michael um, described in the video about how to um, help his students envision making splints out of found materials in the garage or in their home. Um, we uh, were able to find online uh, EpiPen trainers that were like five for $23. And we were thinking, gosh, we could even have those shipped to students. But really thinking very creatively, you know, what's to say that a ballpoint pen couldn't be used as sort of the marker for like, oh, here's how I would practice when I was going to use an auto injector here. And as students start to use their creativity and imagine this is what I would use in this step, um, they start to develop the motor memory for where this would go and how I would practice doing this element of the assessment. And we mentioned before, while it won't be exactly perfect, they will have the steps down and it will accelerate their practice when they do get on the ambulance or they do get in the firehouse on real patients for that on-the-job training in their first assignment. Thanks, Heather. We have a question here about hiring uh, recently graduated students. Let's bring Michael into the discussion. Uh, Michael, have you had contact with EMS agencies or fire departments who are hiring these recently graduated students? And what are some of the things employers are changing in terms of hiring or in terms of their expectations of student skills, experience, and so on? Absolutely. Um, we have been in touch with most of our hiring agencies just because they're seeing um, more need for students and more need for um, providers. Um, while we have seen maybe a drop in a lot of call volumes, what our employers are saying is they're being tasked with different screening opportunities, maybe at airports, um, different sites where essential workers are still coming in where they can work there. Um, so actually it's been a help for some of our um, new hires as they get the on-the-job training while they're also working. So they're doing screening with the agency, um, but in the same time, they're getting oriented to the ambulance, they're, you know, attaching things to the, um, uh, they're, they're attaching oxygen cylinders, they're doing those kind of things, so they're actually getting real hands-on on-the-job training, but they're able to put them right into the setting of doing temperature screenings and stuff like that. Thanks, Michael. We have a question here from Dina who's listening in today. What is your recommendation for time management breakdown for these exercises like breakout rooms, discussions, et cetera? Um, Katie, you want to take that one? Um, so we, we have a pretty large group here at the paramedic school. Um, we had 48 students um, online with us. And what we found is that we kind of needed longer breaks when we were online than we did in person almost. It wasn't as noticeable when people were like trickling into the back of the classroom in person, but it's really more noticeable when they're trickling in online. 
um, and it was harder for us to manage that attendance. So we took a little bit longer breaks. Um, we also, I found that it was really difficult to be sitting in front of my computer. I'm one of those instructors who paces around the entire room. And so it was a point where I was starting to like shake in my chair and just get really antsy and my computer would start to move and the students were like, okay, you need a break, Katie, like you need to get up and walk around. Um, so that was one of the things to remember that we're all sitting and we're um, not a profession that's used to that. Uh, so the breaks to just get up and walk around, stand up were really helpful. And then when we were using the breakout rooms in Zoom, do our case uh, case studies or small group discussions um, and then our virtual simulations. Uh, I set them for the normal skilled rotation time and found that I was rotating instructors out of break rooms before they were really finished with a debrief. We've actually found that our debriefing and our discussions have gotten more intense, more in-depth, and are getting a lot more pathophys. Um, discussion going and that's really great and we don't want to like knock that off so we've increased the amount of time that they can spend in each skills rotation and then give them a little bit of a longer break um, and we have one instructor who he takes the whole 10 minutes to continue talking and the students are like wrapped sitting at their computer just staring at him and they never go to the bathroom so then they're like oh wait hold on we need a longer break so we can actually go to the bathroom um, so we've increased the break time um, but kind of tried to keep it similar to what we would have done in person Okay, uh, we have a question here about um, adequate adequate technology for students uh, to to use. How are your students responding to all of these changes? Have you had any issues with students who do not have adequate technology resources to participate as you intend? I imagine there is some stress and some worry there. Um, Heather, any feedback there? Sure. Well, we had just a couple days notice that we were likely going to have to move to remote, and so we made the choice um, to loan technology. We knew that that meant we might lose some. We certainly hoped that wouldn't be the case, but like many school districts and colleges and universities, we sort of said we can't, we can't leave anybody behind, and there would be no way for somebody to participate if they did not have devices in which to participate. And so um, we really hoped that people would have two devices, a computer or a, a iPad and then, or, you know, a tablet of some sort, and then also a phone. And in some cases they need both. Um, we have students who have uh, some students who have accommodations, and it's fairly important for them to have a device on which they can have the slides already downloaded and take their notes directly onto the slide, but then be able to watch the session on another device. Now, for some students who didn't, we've helped them figure out how to use their TV as a monitor. Um, for others, we've um, so, so anyway, we we were willing to loan devices. And then last day we were in session at practicing. So it was, okay, this is not a content day. We're not actually learning any medical information. We are walking through what it will be like when you are at home on Monday having paramedic school. So everybody log in. This is how we log into Zoom. And you heard Katie talk about how to do some of that. Um, so literally sometimes you'll see uh, UCLA iPad number five. That's the student's name. And then we have to switch to who that is. But that's how they're logged in. So that was some of, of how we did that. We were willing to loan technology. And again, you know, we hope that it all comes back to us. But if it doesn't, um, it was the difference between that student being able to continue in the program and not, and it was probably worth, you know, the investment. So, um, so that's how we chose to address that. 
Um, but it is an important consideration is that uh, some students are stressed and then some things we've heard from students is they believed they had adequate um, internet technology at home until now their three other roommates are also trying to use that same technology or their children who are not going back to school this year are using that same technology or their spouse who is also on an important meeting. And so they're having to have shared resources. And we talked some in the webinar about perhaps needing to alter the schedule a bit or not being afraid to use off times. And that may help you find more success for students. Um, and one of the questions coming up is about policy, one of the things that you might consider doing is extending deadlines for things so that people can work in off hours when the other three or five people in, the, in their household are not trying to use that same internet connection. Thanks, Heather. And then staying on the topic of uh, student feedback, um, are you aware of, of any um, students expressing disappointment or anger that they are not uh, getting, quote, the full package uh, in this type of setup? Yeah, so um, remember that when students are expressing emotion, um, try to understand where some of that is coming from. Much of it is uh, they're grieving what is considered a loss, right? For many of them, they've, they've thought their whole lives, of, or at least their professional life, about what this experience was going to be like. And now it's suddenly disrupted. Many of them might be worried that this is going to be the difference between whether they'll be able to compete for a job or not, whether they'll actually get into that tower, or whether that job offer will come to fruition, whether they'll finish on time and, and be able to apply to whatever the next thing was in their life, or um, just that th th it's a loss and that people have a cycle of grief for that. And so um, there will be uh, um, fear that's associated with that. And so when we're seeing emotion and they're expressing that, try to keep in mind that it's not personal and it's not directed at you personally, um, that they're, um, you know, feeling a lot of emotion and, and challenge. And so try to get to the root of what it is that is they're actually concerned about so that you can be sure that you're addressing the actual problem. And so for some, it is they might be afraid that they're not going to make the transition well and that they might fail out. And so get to the bottom of that emotion so that you can help them with what kind of learning strategies do they need and what is it that they're actually, you know, worried about. Um, is this the right educational setting for them? Do they need to, would they be more comfortable in a regular class? Do they just want to transfer to a regular class and would they be happier with that? And if so, is that possible? Could you just allow them to transfer and then that would work better for them? many would want to continue their education and that's what's going to be important to them is educational continuity and then i think it's really important to remember to reframe for folks that um you know we're really lucky many of us to even be able to have the problem of continuing our education think about how many of our colleagues are responding to patients who are worried right now about bringing this disease home to their family members. If you saw in the news last night, um, the Detroit uh, firefighter and his wife who brought the disease unknowingly home to their um, five-year-old and she died on Sunday. I mean, our problems about how to bring this education to our students and how to continue their education are so small compared to what some of our colleagues are working through. And, 
Um, everybody has, you know, what they're dealing with at home, but that's really on a micro level. And this is, this will shape who these folks are as providers for their entire career. And we can help them see that we're part of something much, much bigger than just what's happening in each of our households right now. I think that that will help a little bit too. Thank you, Heather. Let's uh, go to a question from Keith here. Does having guest speakers present topics extend the length of the course? Uh, and if so, how do you redo the organization and length of the course? Um, Kay, do you want to take that one? Yeah, so we actually kind of like what Heather was saying, the way we're describing it to students is actually what we're doing. We're taking advantage of the fact that we wouldn't have had some of these people available. Um, so we're swapping out what we would normally do. And so one example is I reconnected with a friend from grade school who is now a nurse midwife who's had actually um, experience working with women in um, austere environments in Africa and working for school systems and all different types of uh, experience. And uh, we wouldn't have normally been able to have her teach our OBGYN section because she lives in New Jersey and is a nurse and can't just come to UCLA for a few hours. Um, but now she can because of Zoom and that's where all of our students are. And so usually would have been taught by either myself who, and I'm the first to admit that I am terrible with obstetrical issues. I fit into that EMS provider category where I'm like, I got the airway. I just not good with it. Scarred during my paramedic rotations. Uh, and then Ed, who uh, was present for the birth of his children, but that's about really the extent of his OB experience. Um, so we actually phrased it and told the students that we're like, you can get Ed who delivered his children in a hospital setting. You have Katie who's afraid of it, or you can have a nurse midwife who actually knows what she's talking about and has does delivered in austere conditions, just like you would in every hospital setting. And they're like, oh yeah, we pick the nurse midwife. We want to hear what she has to say. Um, so it works out for us. And so we just exchange that. She's teaching the same content in the same amount of time, um, but we're using an expert that we wouldn't have had. Uh, another one we had, which um, was unfortunate for him, but really fortunate for our program is Dr. Baxter Larman, who's one of our faculty members and was the founder of the Center for Free Hospital Care. Um, his trips to Hawaii were canceled because of COVID. So he was all of a sudden available and free to teach his sections. So we've been able to do that. So it's not extending our course, but it's actually giving us the opportunity to get a lot of experts in. We get quite a few questions on our webinars about how many uh, or, or which of these changes will be permanent and which are kind of just temporary measures to get us through the pandemic. So that brings us to our next question. Uh, maybe we can have Michael chime in on this. Um, how much of these educational changes that you talk about uh, and that you made during the pandemic will remain uh, once we go back to normal? I actually think this is a great opportunity for us to really look at our innovations and say, um, and I keep telling my staff, there's things we're going to discover that are way better um, with this innovation, with this technology. Um, a couple of them that I already were going to include um, are some things like our info sessions and some of our study sessions and open office hours. We're getting much better participation by having these online um, than we do having students come to class for just a couple hours. Um, so I actually do think we'll actually keep some of those things in terms of online office hours um, and some of our study sessions. We have an info session every month on people interested in becoming EMS providers um, and we're getting double the amount of attendance by doing it on online than we are when they have to come to the building. So I think there's some things like that. And I think we're going to 
continue to see more and more things that we're like, hey, that's actually a great innovation and we could do that online. I also recognize that what we keep hearing is that we may be able to open back up and then if we do see a hot spot um, of disease spread, then we may need to kind of clamp back down or go back online. Um, so having students come to class for a couple weeks, getting their tech set up while they're there. Um, as Katie's mentioned, the paramedic team's done did, did a really nice that and what we found is that that's actually probably best practice is when they are when we do have them in class they are available we'll make sure that they have the technology set up so that if we were have to go back online now know how to do it and we know that everybody's set up to do it um, just recognizing that that's a possibility um, and I just think I'm on, oh go ahead oh um, a couple Please. of things that we've done um, you saw in the video our lovely fake target setup with the virtual backgrounds in zoom um, we we're like, oh, we could probably do that on our TVs in the classroom. So we have TVs on all of our skills walls, but they're always turned off during skill sessions. And so now we're thinking of like, man, why don't we just put the target background up on that TV just like we did in online. So we're actually seeing how we can improve our in-person stuff with some of the um, great, awesome innovations people are doing online for us. We have a question here about the AHA materials uh, that, that you mentioned. Did you have to get permission from AHA to use their material online so as not to violate their copyright? My experience is that they've been resistant to this in the past. Um, Katie, thoughts on that? Yeah, so for our paramedic class, we actually use the hard code mo modules for ACLS and for PALS. We did it for BLS too. We've, um, that's our normal practice for them to take the hard code BLS online and then do the skill session in person with us at the beginning of the course. Um, so we moved to the those, and they're approved for online. They're actually AHA's products. Um, and then for the use of the cases, we're using them from the instructor uh, manual, and that's like approved. So it's just the information that we're pulling from the instructor manuals, which if you're an ACLS instructor, you have to have and you have to use. Um, so we're doing that. We're not putting anything online that's copyrighted. How about uh, patient assessments for the trauma and medical scenarios? Um, do, you, do you use a simplified patient assessment for trauma and medical uh, for the pathway for teaching that you can share? Michael, do you want to take that one? Yeah, we actually did a whole review of our patient assessment model in um, November and rolled it out to our staff in December, um, which really shifted us from the 140-point checklist of, of going down the body and just listing off different things um, to really more of a critical symptom or critical thinking basis um, that was not just sit across the table and recite an assessment to someone. Um, we've had great luck with that, and actually our clinical instructors are super um, engaged in it and actually have found that doing it online is much easier. It gets students through the steps, uh, the process of learning, um, and they're not just rote memorizing something, but they're actually applying the concepts that we want them to be applying that they're learning in lecture um, to our patient assessment, which is actually getting them to simulation faster, um, which our clinical instructors love, because we all know that doing some simulation is more fun than just discrete skill so um, we're happy with that we also know that the more learning comes from simulation than just from discrete skills practice so um, we actually did do a little bit of review of patient assessment a while back and it's benefiting us now um, because students are able to progress through it so much quicker um, we're seeing they're able to progress through it online just the same um, the assessing the teddy bear assessing family members I've seen some people counting respiratory rates um, of their dogs and cats which um, you know chest rise is all the same and the fact that they're getting the, in their mind, they're applying the concept, um, to me is just as good as memorizing a checklist. 
Thanks, Michael. How about grading the virtual scenarios? Robert wants to know, how are you grading virtual scenarios to count toward their portfolio requirements? Uh, anybody on the, on the panel have thoughts there? Katie, I thought you were doing that. <laughs> oh, sorry. I thought yours was, uh, I think your answer is better, but um, Heather and I were talking about this, actually. This is something that, like, of course, all the paramedic programs are facing, and I know there's been a lot of changes coming out from the COA and the different states, and here in California, where it seems like we're still kind of making changes as this progresses. Um, so the thing for us that was important was that we wanted to stick with requirements um, that were part of the program. So when a student does a virtual simulation, we still designate team leaders and partners. And um, if it was a scenario where they would have like one paramedic partner and then they, we would pretend that there was like three EMTs on an engine company assisting, we're still doing that. And so the person who's the team leader still is required to do all of the team leader roles. And then they have to document it in FizDAP as if it was an in-person scenario. So what we specifically do is pick scenarios that have learning objectives that translated to the online environment. So we didn't do a scenario that required like intubation because you can't intubate virtually, at least not yet, um, through Zoom. That's not one of their features. So we went with things that had team uh, communication, closed loop communication, um, therapeutic communication with the patient, and then a really good differential diagnosis, assessment type questions. And so they're having to uh, work through that whole thing. Um, and then they're verbalizing any type of uh, skill that would have to be happening in person. And they're assigning a team member to do that skill. And then our, um, so that person is doing that skill and then we would ask them questions around that skill so that they have uh, a little bit of learning around that. But uh, they're still putting it into FizDOP, documenting it like it's a team lead event. And we're getting, we're giving them the credit for successful team leads for scenarios. If you're thinking Appendix G, we're looking at uh, table three for those leads. So we're still doing that because they're still working through the entire management of the call if they're not doing the actual IO skill or IB skill. Um, that's really not what that learning objective is anyway. So that's how we're managing the virtual scenarios and looking more for uh, call, uh, table three in Appendix G. So uh, we know that Zoom calls can sometimes get a little chaotic. Uh, Sarah wants to know, when you're on a Zoom call or, uh, or in a virtual classroom, how do you manage multiple answers or sort of a free-for-all of questions or answers coming from multiple students since everyone can type, uh, type into the chat at one time? Um, Katie, Michael, any thoughts on that one? Well, as we mentioned, um, we stole Hillary's idea um, of equity sticks and turned them into the sticks of justice. Um, so we ask a question that the students are trained now and know not to just shout out answers, um, that someone will get a ticked from the sticks of justice and they'll have to be the one that answers that. Um, when we've been playing charades, we require that the answer to be put in the chat. So whoever types in the, the answer in the chat first and it has to be spelled right if it's a medical condition, um, wins that for charades. And then when we want to do like timed or lots of fast answers, we are utilizing Kahoot. I think too, one of the things we found is that in big groups, the chat feature of Zoom works really well. But then um, when we're in smaller groups, you have five, six, seven students, we're actually turning people's microphones on and we are able to have the discussion. Um, I, I, I know when we've been doing skills labs, um, the groups that I have um, are definitely on their toes because I just call on people. You can set Zoom to keep everybody's name with their video. So if you're looking at everybody in grid view, 
um, you know who's out there. And if you notice that somebody's kind of drifting off, just like you would normally do in class, um, you might try and engage them a little bit more, call on them. Um, I know all the students, um, after one of their skills labs, we asked for some feedback. Um, and some of their comments were, um, I'm def I definitely know I have to be on my toes because um, people keep calling on me. So I think that's our way of keeping them engaged and building that discussion, um, having them, you know, partner with each other. Um, I thought it was really interesting. One of the things I noted in, in some of the skills labs that we've done um, is the students will actually send messages to each other using the Zoom feature of chat. So if they're in a skill station, they'll actually send information to each other um, and be like, hey, remember to check for this. Hey, I, um, make sure you check for hypoglycemia, um, stuff like that, that I think that we don't even know is going on, but they're actually helping each other out um, and having those interactions that they would be having normally in a skills lab, but now they're having them just via Zoom. Yeah, and then Thanks, they Mike. also have the raise your hand feature. We use the raise your hand feature a lot because that brings the student to the top of the participation box. And so they actually have a, like their little hand raised on Zoom. And then since we require our students to have the cameras on, they are still raising their hand on their video chat. Um, and with, you know, sometimes we have, I think one class we had 65 participants. Um, we use a TA in the pro, uh, a class. So another instructor who's literally just monitoring, who's raising their hand either in the video or using the Zoom monitor and then monitoring the chat. And that's helped us manage large groups. How about scheduling instructors and guest speakers? Uh, can you suggest some best practices for how to schedule the instructors, the guest speakers, et cetera? I'm really struggling with getting everyone's availability and schedules aligned. Um, Katie, feedback on that one? Yeah, this was a struggle for me too, especially with the amount of um, increased email traffic that I was receiving, just trying to keep it all straight. Uh, we use Google Drive for education, and so we use the Drive, we use Google Sheets, and we're using Google Forms um, so I can send something out, and then it just creates an Excel sheet for me with people's availability. Um, I haven't used it, but I've been like a end user of Doodle Poll, which is a free um, one that looks at like availability so you can help you schedule meetings. Um, and then for us, it's like just uh, keeping everyone's, we have uh, Outlook, so for all my staff, we have our Outlook calendars and adding um, all of the events and stuff to Outlook so that if there is a Zoom meeting, it literally just pops a reminder and you can just click that one um, to be on the Zoom. So we're using those kinds of tools to keep us all together. Primarily in the paramedic program, we're using Google um, and Slack, but I don't know, if, uh, EMT, if you guys are using something different, Mike? Uh, a lot of Google Forms, which I think you'll see come up in a few different answers, that it just seems like it's a really easy thing to use and it doesn't have to interact with your LMS. Great. Uh, during the presentation, you mentioned that uh, you should decide for yourself which policies to ignore and which to enforce. One of our attendees is hoping that you could expand on that a little bit and maybe provide some uh, some examples. Um, Heather, what do you think? Hi, sure. So I think you have to decide what matters to you. So if dress code, you know, you have to decide if that matters to you because people are now in their home. So for many folks, the reason they have a dress code is because they're on their students are on campus and they expect their students to present themselves a particular way. If you are thinking now, well, the students are at home and really I just care that they're appropriate from the waist up, then asking students to be in their full uniform the entire day while sitting in their home 
might seem petty to students. And so you have to decide in this time when their whole life has been disrupted and there might be participating in something that isn't their first choice, is this the, you know, hill you want to die on? And so if it no longer matters, you may be able to relax this standard and say, as long as you're dressed appropriately for class, um, then we can relax this standard. Um, or you can, you know, just say, I, you know, as long as you don't have a hat on or you, you can adjust there to what might seem reasonable for students now that they're not coming to campus and that they're, you know, in their house. But you decide if, if dress code still matters and you still want somebody high and tight in front of their camera all day, then that's fine. You just have to decide what will you do about it if the student is not in in their uniform in front of the camera all day what will will you ask them not to participate will you ask them to turn their camera off and then what have what will you do with those consequences and so you just need to think through what you want the sequelae to be and if that, those are really great choices at this time so another is we talked some about proctoring exams if you know that you don't have any ability to proctor exams very well right now, then don't use your high stakes exams. Um, use old exams or quizzes or make assignments that are and make them open resource. Literally say, I have, you know, here it is. I expect that you will look things up and that's why the passing standard is no longer 75 or 80 percent. I expect that you'll need to get a 90 on this in order to pass. Um, and you're welcome to, you know, work in groups and et cetera. So you change those things according to what might be appropriate in this environment and what you can actually do something about. Um, if you had strict deadlines about if an assignment is, you know, one minute late, it's late and I won't accept it, or 10% for every day something is late. Knowing now that people have all of these competing demands and extra pressures and technology challenges, you might decide if that's still what you want to do. If, if you want to give extra time, if you want them to complete the assignment, perhaps you will take late work now. Or like I said, maybe you extend deadlines to midnight or the next morning if you know that people are sharing internet resources and you want them to be able to work in the off hours when the other people in their home, like their children, are not using the internet. So that's what I mean by making sure that you pick and choose and, and the ones that are very important to you, like and attendance and engagement, you pay attention to those policies and the ones that you can actually do anything about anyway. Thanks, Heather. We talked uh, earlier a little bit about interfacing with the technology. Joe wants to know, I need some help with the varying ages of my students. There seems to be a big learning curve for some in terms of the technology. Also, my adult EMT students have more difficulty than my younger students do with actually learning things online. Can you offer any advice? Katie, you want to take that one? Yeah, so oddly, in the paramedic class, we're seeing the opposite. Uh, our younger students are struggling more with the distance education, um, like significantly compared to some of our older students in the course. Um, we don't have a huge age disparity, but we do have some students who are like 19 years old and then up into the like close to 40s or 40s, I think. Um, and then ones that are around the 19, 20 year old area are the ones that are struggling the most. Um, but it's not so much with technology, it's more with this idea of like self-paced and discipline. Um, one of the things that we are having a really hard time recreating is 
the amount of time that these students were informally working with peer groups. So one of the things we do every morning at UCLA is have a quiz. And they go from the quiz when they finish immediately to the break room where they're getting breakfast and making coffee. And that's where they start trying to rip apart the questions about how unfair they are. They should get these points back. And did you answer that? That, that was totally this answer, right? It couldn't have been this because of that. And what they're doing is actually arguing for and against different answers and cases. And that's really high level learning. Um, but now when they finish their quiz online, they just are sitting at their homes doing their breakfast, making avocado toast, whatever California kids do. Um, and they're not engaging in that really high level learning. And it's hard to convey that to some of the younger students who um, don't have that kind of uh, thought process around, well, then now I have to do something else to make up for that. They're just kind of waiting for us to give them that direction to replace some of that time. Uh, and it's been really difficult. And even when we try to, they're focusing a lot on the old strategies that they had of um, reviewing their notes and um, reviewing their uh, slides and lectures, but that's not engaging them in these higher level conversations and active choices that they have to make. Um, so we've been trying to get them to do things like take practice tests and quizzes that are a higher level. So it's really the making sure that they're re uh, replacing things that they have lost when they don't actually notice that they've lost that. Um, and for the technology piece, um, my dad actually came in and became a Zoom patient. And it was great because he had all the medical conditions that we needed, an old guy with uh, beta blockers and all this. And he was loving acting confused. Um, but he didn't have Zoom. So uh, Zoom actually lets you control a remote desktop. So you can do some like IT support. So as soon as I can like walk him through via FaceTime, downloading Zoom on his computer, then all we had to do is join the meeting and I could remote desktop and set it up the way I wanted it. And then we practiced um, with Zoom and checked out his sound and um, all of that. So if, if you take the time to work one-on-one -on -one with people who are struggling with the technology and just show them the different features, I've found that they actually are fine with what we need to do for learning. We're not asking them to do coding or anything like that. Um, so that one-on-one -on -one time and using the remote tech feature in Zoom was really helpful for us for the tech issue. The bigger issue is more about how do I transition my learning and my learning strategies to the new online environment or the distance environment when I don't have my classmates to be sitting next to me, helping me or um, leading me down the right path to study for a couple hours after class versus just turn my computer off and now I'm at home and I'm not studying. Okay, uh, how about survey programs? James wants to know, can you run through some of the survey programs you use and what you think about them? Are you using SurveyMonkey or something else? Michael, you wanna take that one? Yeah, we um, SurveyMonkey is actually a great resource if, if you just get students input um, and you just want you know allow them to answer a question, you can certainly use multiple different formats in terms of multiple choice um, or input a response, uh, like type of response. We actually find Google Forms is actually a little bit easier to use just simply because we use other Google applications in our classroom. Um, I do like Google because you can set it up as a survey or you can actually set it up similar to like an exam um, where you can do some um, browser restrictions and stuff like that. Um, we like it because we can also set it as anonymous or user reported data. So um, if I want the students to give me honest feedback, I find making them aware that it's anonymous is always the best. Um, but it also allows us to ask students multiple choice questions um, if you know are you you know on a scale of zero to five how comfortable are you with this 
um, or I, we use a lot of Likert scales, um, but also I can have them type a paragraph. You know, what's your biggest fear right now? What, what's the, what concepts are we struggling with? Um, they can actually type in how they're doing. So uh, we found that Google Forms is actually one of the best ways to do it right now. Thanks, Michael. Another question here about technology. What do you do when students have hardware difficulty, like their webcams not working or computers that crash or go over their devices' data limits? How do you handle that situation? Heather, any thoughts? I think it's funny that I'm the person we're asking because anybody who knows me knows of the people on the call, I'm the least technology savvy here. But um, what we really want is students to know that we care about them and we care about their learning and that a single, you know, device failure is not, they're not going to get kicked out of class that we're not mad at them. What we want is to help them solve the problem, get it fixed so that they can get back to learning. And so be nice, be understanding, and do what we can to make the information available. So if uh, you were recording the Zoom sessions anyway, make them available after the session so that they can get whatever they missed when they were unable to attend. Um, something that might help with this anyway is to be posting things asynchronously. Um, like uh, rather than show the video in class, you might post links to the videos that you want students to watch and actually have them watch those videos on their own and then come back into the session. They probably will play better for students um, and not be as choppy. And then you can, you know, ask questions and still talk about the learning points of the video. But you might do the same with materials that you want them to review, have them do that offline and then come back into the session and review those materials. Um, but then you want to communicate your expectation about getting those devices fixed if possible. And like like Katie mentioned, if you know if the uh, genius bar is, is not functioning and they can't get their products fixed, then how what you really care about is their engagement. So if there's you know if it's their web camera is not going to be fixed for weeks, then what we want to have an exchange about is how will I know that you're participating in class? Will you if I ask a question to you aloud in class and you don't have your webcam on, then my expectation might be that you respond immediately in the chat. I shouldn't there shouldn't be a delay and I shouldn't have to call on you twice. That's how I will know that you are engaged. You know, this is also a good opportunity to just talk about folks who are, you know, many of our students uh, are come from various backgrounds and when they're in class, they can present to us whomever they want us to see. Um, and the fact of having their video camera on gives us a window into their world that they may or may not be very comfortable with. And so um, we also want to be aware that some students may say they have a broken camera or be uh, hesitant to have their camera on because they're not very comfortable with us seeing what's happening in their home. And so uh, just, keep, you know, just file that away, keep that in the back of your brain that there might be something else happening at home that they're not very comfortable with you seeing. And so uh, just be gentle uh, about this issue and really get to the root of what do you want. You probably want engagement. So could they participate via chat? Could they participate via text? Could they use the features that Katie described by raising their hand, using the thumbs up, thumbs down features in Zoom or Adobe Connect or whatever other platform that you're using? Um, you know, turning in assignments on time. Are there other measures that you could put in place for a student who is struggling to use, you know, some of the features that you described?
Um, I can just jump in for a second. I think the data limit issue is a real problem. And we spend a lot of time talking about how we can make these sessions richer and more exciting with like videos of EMS calls that they walk through. Um, but every time we're, we, we add that, we're also adding a potential issue for someone who doesn't have that kind of data. Um, and if anyone's ever gone over on their data, they know the pinch in the pocket when you, that happens. And it's not really realistic, especially for a lot of our students who are making minimum wage working as EMPs here in California. Um, so what we, one of the things that I've done is for accessibility purposes and for trying to manage people's uh, downloading is to change PowerPoint files into PDFs, which are much smaller so that if they wanted to get the slides or wanted to review them, they can do that without having to download a larger file. Um, and then we've also posted uh, what I would call like slimmed down versions of case studies. So instead of watching a video and doing an interactive program like Case X, um, it's literally just a PDF of the case and some questions. So it's one file and they can work through it on their own time. Um, and they're getting that information without having to maybe use all of their bandwidth so that they could save it for that video of a kid having a seizure that is, we feel like is super important that they see um, versus doing some of these like ride along videos, which are great, can be really useful, but we could do that in a way that saves their bandwidth for something else. Thank you, Katie. Uh, switching gears to talk a little bit about exams. Uh, we have a question here. How are you using FISDAP in this new environment? Hi, it's Heather. I'm assuming that somebody's asking about using the FISDAP exams. So uh, we chose to save our the FISDAP exams for when we return to campus. So um, FISDAP exams are valid and secure exams, so they need to be given in a proctored environment. Um, and since we can't gather, that's not going to be a live proctored environment. Now, we could have chosen to use an outside service like ProctorU or Examity or other services that provide live proctoring, um, but that's an expense, and we would have felt responsible for that expense because students certainly, you know, that wasn't their choice to go remote. Um, so we didn't want to incur additional expense when we knew classes were being canceled and revenue was going to be an issue. Um, it, but in addition to that, the whole world went remotely and we knew that, that the test seat or ability to proctor might be a challenge for that service, that company. And also when you need a large number of seats in a service like that, you have to leave the testing window open for a while, so like for a couple of days. And we were a little bit uncomfortable with that so that some students would have taken the exam maybe Saturday morning and other students wouldn't have taken it until perhaps Monday morning. And we didn't love that either. And so what we chose to do was revert back to our old exams um, and use them just as a measure of did you get the material that we have just presented? Um, as a sort of, you know, just litmus test of how did you do here? We are keeping our, the FISDAP exams for when we return um, to campus as a measure of the decay that has happened because we assume that it will be four to six weeks probably before we are able to gather here in California. And we will need a valid assessment of what have the students forgotten. And we'll need some very clear direction about what do we need, what is the gap that needs to be closed. And because the FISDEP unit exams come with a remediation prescription, it will help the students and us as a, a school know really what do we need to be focused on, where are the gaps. 
and then we'll have a much better plan for how to close those in addition to all the skills work that needs to be done when we return to campus. Um, we're talking, the question was about FISDAP, so that's what I'm ask, ask, answering, but of course if you use any of the other, you know, uh, services, if you have a different vendor, they would have something similar. Um, the, the answer here is really around what if you have valid exams, should you be using them in this environment? And I would just say be very, very careful because you know that anything given in an unproctored environment um, is probably lost. And in some cases, you have a contractual arrangement with the vendor to not allow these exams to be given um, unproctored. Um, the that stuff too. Their community, we've been relying on a lot um, for their, when you're a FISAP user, you have access to a whole group of scenarios that you can use with students. Um, there's also a whole bunch of questions that are available, so you can use practice questions. And um, we've been using the FISDAP um, study tools with the students to keep them engaged and to um, keep them doing practice questions too. So that's been really helpful for us. All the other things that come with the products, not just the scheduler, not just the tech tracker, but the FISDAP community where everyone's sharing stuff. And I would really recommend everyone get involved with item writing and item reviewing because there is a high possibility that during a session of time when people are maybe giving them in a less secure environment that we might lose some of our questions or some of our tests. And we want to keep that community and those tests strong. So if you have time uh, while you're in between all these amazing webinars, jump on an item review session. Thank you, Katie and Heather. Uh, during the webinar, you talked a little bit about open note and open book um, assignments and assessments. Can you talk a little bit about that? And do you give students a time limit uh, if it's open note or open book? Yeah, so my answer here would be it depends on whether you're giving it as an assessment or as an assignment. So the difference here is basically is it a test is or is it a learning activity? And so if you're giving it as a test, then probably yes, you do have a time limit because you're still testing to see if even if you know that the student is going to use resources um, to find the answers, let's call those a job aid. And in the culture of safety, it may be perfectly appropriate to use a job aid even in the real world. We may want, want learners or practitioners to look something up rather than guess, that's fine. Um, but you still want them to know basically what are they looking for and where to go to find the answer. And the nature of our job is time sensitive. You can't take all day to figure out what's wrong with a patient and how to manage their condition. And so you probably do have a time limit on that. However, if it's a learning assignment, if you if it's really about the process of working through what's wrong with the patient and it's more about a learning activity, especially if it's a team-based or collaborative type of assignment, then there might not be any reason that you need to give them any kind of time limit to do so. Um, the other is about where you have it placed in the management of your day. So if you're starting, you know, this type of activity in the morning, and at some point you're going to want to move on with the course of your day, then you may have a time limit on it just so that you can move along with other instruction. So um, the short answer there is, is it an assessment or an assignment? If it's an assessment or a test, then you probably do have a time limit associated with that. And it's really about the ability to use and find and use that information quickly enough to impact patient care. 
Thank you, Heather. Uh, Carmen is joining us today and wants to know what platform would you recommend for creating and delivering tests to our students? Uh, Michael, any thoughts there? Yeah, I think um, I would try and make it as easy as possible. So I think I would look at what LMS you're using and see if you have an LMS that actually does this for you. Most of them will allow you to import questions or add questions in um, and deliver them that way. Um, there are other outside platforms that help you create tests and put them into your LMS. But um, I think I think that's what I that's the easiest way to go about it is to eliminate some of the operability problems. Um, is to just figure out what your LMS allows you to use. Um, if you're not using an LMS or you don't have a learning management system that you use in your classroom, uh, I think Google Classroom is probably one of the easiest to learn how to use. You can actually get certified as a Google Classroom instructor um, and some things like that. Um, most, most questions you could have, you can just Google um, and it'll tell you the answers about Google Classroom. So if you're looking for one to easily use, um, that's one. And then I would also say a lot of textbooks have um, LMSs that come with them. So um, finding whichever one you have access to is probably the easiest and then applying the technology to your advantage so you don't have to try and figure out how to get a new technology platform to work with your testing features. Thanks, Michael. We'll move to one from Jennifer. Uh, Jennifer says, I love the NREMT prep question sessions with the students. Is there a specific source you're getting the questions from? Is it the student's uh, textbook? Um, Michael, you want to take that one? Yeah, great question, Jennifer. Um, actually, I just made them. Um, I just found that about 10.30 p.m. or so, I get really creative when it comes to writing NREMT test questions. Um, I think most of our team has been to the NREMT, but they have a style guide and some simple things like that. Um, but they, most of that's public. You, we also know that they ask specific stems, like you should, um, your biggest concern should be. Um, so I think you can go through a textbook and just, um, I just picked out concepts that a new student struggled with, simple things like the difference between respiratory distress and respiratory failure, the treatments thereof, um, and, and did that and created them myself. What I found was we could get through between 20 and 25 questions in about an hour um, with some good discussion that the students had. Um, I think if you, if that's a, a, a huge time commitment to write all of those and then host the sessions, um, most textbooks do actually come with some questions, but I would um, just make sure you review those before you throw those in. Um, you may find that they don't all match the NREMT type questions. I know um, our textbook uses questions that are the um, all of the following except. We know that the registry typically stays away from those type of questions. Um, so I think just recognizing that you probably do have a bunch with a test bank with a textbook, um, but I would want to review those just for educational consistency. Make sure it's the same thing that you want the student to know um, and you don't get startled by a question. Um, and again, we also want to make sure it prepares the student. So making sure that you're following, um, you know, the style guide, this writing with the stems that the NREMT uses um, is probably the most helpful. And speaking of that uh, national registry exam, um, are students able to take their national registry written exam uh, with person view currently via a remote format or uh, is the remote proctoring for, uh, for something else? Heather, you want to shed some light on that? Sure, yeah, there are person view test sites open. So just depending on where you are in the country will depend on what the accessibility is. And so if you're a program director or instructor, you can find, you can figure that out by going to Pearson View's website. You go to the very bottom and say, I want to schedule an exam. Then it'll come up in the middle and you have to put in NREMT and then that'll come up and it says find a test site. 
um, and then you'll be able to see which test sites are open. My suggestion is to call. Um, there is limited availability um, right now, so um, because they're using safe social distancing, um, it's about a third to half of the normal capacity, and of course there are you know limited number of sites. So. Um, here in Los Angeles, because it's a large urban area, there's more availability than there probably is in some rural areas. Um, and we have definitely seen it improve over the last month or five weeks. Um, it, at one point, it was pretty scarce. Um, however, uh, we also, the Board of Directors uh, approved remote proctoring for uh, um, EMT and AEMT exams. And that should be available starting in May, and that will free up the limited number of seats that are available in the Pearson View testing sites to make those seats more accessible to paramedic test takers so that then EMT and AEMT test takers can be taking remote exams. So um, the network for cognitive exams or the written exams should, we have a pretty good pipeline and ability for folks to take that. And then of course the psychomotor exam, most folks will take the option of um, sort of shelving that for now, doing the provisional certification, um, and then returning to take the psychomotor exam once we can all come back to campus. Um, many, many states are taking advantage of that and the, have made the provisional available for, I think in most cases they're doing it for six months. So then students have six months to return once uh, psychomotor exams open back up. Some states have chosen to keep their psychomotor exam, um, but of course that depends on how many cases of um, COVID-19 they have had and what their assessment uh, with their health officials is that it's safe to do so. Thanks, Heather. We have time to get to a few more questions here. We're going to go to one from James. Does the AHA allow virtual skills assessments after completion of the heart code ACLS and PALS? Has anyone done this with I simulate? Katie, do you want to take that one? Yeah, so we haven't done it with our students yet, but um, they do allow for virtual skills demonstration. You still need to make sure that you're getting all of the um, skills components checked off. So you need to be using a mannequin with feedback, um, and you need to be able to test everything aside from um, there's a couple things that in the instructor bulletin they've put out that you can change, but still need to do high quality compression, still need to get that feedback. Uh, so if you have the reality software with the CPR modules, you can actually do that remotely because you can stream it through Apple TV and the person with the iPad can be in a whole separate room um, and be getting all the information on feedback and then they can actually um, give that to the person asynchronously or uh, you can actually do it like a Zoom meeting if you wanted to and give them feedback and have them retest or try. Uh, but you get the feedback on ventilation and you can get the feedback on compressions. You can do that with QCPR as well if you have QCPR mannequins. Um, which is what we have at UCLA. They have the app on your phone, so you can be in a different place and getting feedback from the mannequin, or the student can actually get the feedback themselves. Uh, another thing that you can do, and that's been around for a really long time, is the um, RQI program has mannequin carts. They're voice-assisted mannequins, so that's already part of the uh, heart code program. You can do your heart code online, and then you go to one of the voice-assisted mannequins, and you do your skill session without an instructor involved. So there are a whole bunch of ways to continue your ACLS, PALS, and BLS training, um, even though you're not able to meet in person to have a normal class. 
Thanks, Katie. How about uh, encouraging participation in a digital format? Uh, Kingsley wants to know, how do I engage and encourage participation when sending out a monthly agenda to employees who would normally be meeting in person? Um, Mike, you want to shed some light on that? Yeah, actually, that's an incredibly timely question. We actually did our all-staff in-service on Sunday night. Um, we do three of them throughout the year, and it's a great opportunity to get everybody together. And uh, we usually try and roll out something new that we're going to be teaching um, itself for all of our clinical instructors, so all those people that are helping us teach skills. Um, we were actually able to do it. We did it via Zoom, and we actually had more people attend than, than we um, typically do when we do an in-person session. Driving somewhere for a two-hour meeting and then leaving um, is somewhat uh, difficult. Um, in L in Los Angeles, but what we actually did, I tried to kind of wear my educator hat when planning it. We did a gathering activity um, where we did kind of some surveys. Um, we went around and had everybody introduce their um, uh, lots of our clinical instructors do, and again, they they wouldn't bring that to class typically. Um, but being on Zoom, we could see everybody's um, new pets if they ever got a new pet, or people were showing off their pets. So just some kind of fun things to kind of get everybody engaged. Realize that yes, it's totally we can totally have a monthly meeting or a staff meeting online. Um, and then we were able to we actually rolled out a brand new way teaching medication administration, including um, a, a medication safety check um, with a partner. So some things like that that we really recognized we needed to deliver to staff, and this was already on the books. Um, so we were actually able to move it to Zoom, um, did lots of things with screen sharing, allowed people to, you know, again, get kind of creative with how you're going to do it. So people see that, yeah, like, yeah, we can have some fun. Um, we made everybody um, share their favorite pandemic snack um, and just some things like that to kind of be creative and fun and get people engaged. Thanks, Michael. We have a question from Jeremy um, going back to kind of hands-on skills practice. When teaching skills or assessments online, do you have any suggestions on how to replace the med bag or other tools such as the O2, the masks, the nebulizer that the students would normally have uh, in the lab? Michael, you want to take that one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've had some really creative students, and I have to admit, I'm not the most creative person in the world. Um, so we actually turned this over to one of our classes that we ended up kind of pausing and then bringing back online. Um, and they've been asking some really good questions. I've seen a couple of them create oxygen cylinders. One used a spray bottle, um, put a piece of tape over it so they could still insert tubing into um, they colored it with green tape um, um, or just used a marker and some green tape. We had another person turn a fire extinguisher into an oxygen cylinder, um, just covering it in white paper and then co covering it or coloring a green strip across the top of it um, so they could still employ the fact that they had it. Um, we, I got a question the other day that was, can we use chip clips for pulse oxes? Um, I was like, yes, absolutely. I think that's a great opportunity. So um, all of those are great options. And again, kind of your students are creative people. They we want to know that they have the concepts down. So I really feel comfortable allowing them to do some of these things. Um, we're starting a new class, and one of the things we're telling them is all to keep their Amazon boxes because we recognize that cardboard splints are, uh, are actually a great way to demonstrate competency of joint mobilization and long bone immobilization. So um, many people are getting deliveries right now. So um, we found that that's another way we can do it. And again, I just want to know that the students understand the concept. Do we may be a little bit creative with the tools that we're using? But as long as they're displaying the concept, I'm pretty happy and I'm pretty, uh, um, I'm confident that we're getting that confidence built in them and the competency built in them. 
Thank you so much, Michael. That's about all we have time for today. I want to thank again Heather Davis, Michael Caduce, Kathleen O'Connor for joining us. We can't thank you enough for putting together this webinar, uh, staying overtime to answer questions from attendees and sharing your knowledge today. One more time, we would like to thank Boundtree for sponsoring the webinar and helping bring the presentation to you. Uh, Heather, Michael, and uh, Katie, any closing comments before we sign off today? We have a little bit of time here. Uh, this is Heather. I would say never doubt that a small group of committed people can change the world. That's what you're trying to do and keep the flow going and nothing else ever has. I love that. I think yeah. that's great. Um, I'm relying on students' creativity right now. Um, as long as the students will stick with us, we're committed to making sure they have the education. Um, I would tell your students the same thing. Um, we can get through this. We will get through this. Um, and at the end of this, we're going to need healthcare providers. And then I just say we're all in this together. So we're all participating in this webinar today. Um, you'd be surprised uh, if you just ask what help you'll get. So uh, I found that out at the very beginning of this whole thing. I just asked people to help me. And not only are they willing to help, but they've greatly improved the quality of my program. And when I needed a resource, I was able to get one from our community. So I'd say if you have a question for us, we're all happy to answer. Feel free to reach out, let us know. Uh, reach out to your other fellow UMass educators, reach out to the people that you wouldn't have expected, like your family and friends who maybe are at home and are willing to play patience for you. Uh, it's just stay connected even though we're distanced. All right, sounds good. And our thanks to the three of you for joining us today. One last note for our audience, you can find the recording of this webinar shortly. Uh, it'll be available on our webinars page at emsworld.com slash webinars. Um, please visit that page. We have new webinars coming up all the time. Our next presentation will be this Friday, April 24th at 1 p.m. Eastern. We will have Drs. Peter Antevi and Rick Pescatore joining us, and they will discuss uh, coronavirus testing for patients and how EMS leaders can incorporate testing within their systems. Again, thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today and for what you're doing uh, every day in the field. Please stay safe and have a great week, and we'll connect on uh, the next webinar. Thanks. Michael, Heather, and Katie. Thanks, everyone. Bye. All right, bye now. This has been an episode of EMS World Podcast. You can find this audio and more like it on the podcast page of emsworld.com. You can also follow EMS World on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And see you in Vegas, September 14th through the 18th, 2020, at EMS World Expo.